part of the issue we sometimes face is that you know, our first name is Oregon, and for people who haven't visited Oregon, they immediately decide it's not possible for the largest regional theater in the country to be in the state of Oregon. And Shakespeare's our middle name, so they assume that all we do is Shakespeare, and that's just not true. And uh, Festival is our last name, and so they assume that we're just a summer theater, and that's not true either. We have talked about perhaps changing the name, but because our name goes back to 1935, we have no intention of changing the name. Hi, and welcome to The State of Shakespeare. I'm Jim Elliott. And I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And today on The State, we have Scott Kaiser. Scott Kaiser is the Director of Company Development at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival in Ashland, where he has been a member of the artistic staff since 1993. Scott has worked as an actor, a voice and text coach, an adapter, and a director on every play in Shakespeare's canon. Uh, he is the author of three books on Shakespeare, the Tao of Shakespeare, Shakespeare's Wordcraft, and Mastering Shakespeare, an acting class in seven scenes. Scott has created several original works and adaptations for theater, including Love's Labors One, a sequel to Shakespeare's Love's Labors Lost. He has coached, taught, and directed at numerous theaters and actor training programs around the country, including the Guthrie, the Intamun, California Institute of the Arts, Indiana University, Duke University, and the University of Washington. Welcome, Scott. It's great to have you. It's a pleasure to join you. Thank you for asking me to be here with you. Thanks for joining us, Scott. So we're conducting this interview remotely, of course, and uh, you are, at this moment, where in the country? I'm in Ashland, Oregon, where my uh, home base is. And of course, the Oregon Shakespeare Festival is in Ashland, Oregon, and the Oregon Shakespeare Festival is one of the top regional theaters in the country. Just how big is the OSF? <laughs> well, I think by most measures, we're the biggest regional theater in the United States. I think our budget is something like $34 million. We do 11 plays in rotating rep throughout the season. And we have a just a, a very, very large acting company, probably the largest acting company in the nation, which runs over 100 actors at the height of our season. And we're also the oldest, uh, having been here since 1935. So there's a lot of superlatives attached to the, the festival here. It's a beautiful place to visit. And I remember when I was living in Southern California, I drove up from L.A. and I would continue to make cross-country trips to the festival for many years after I moved to the East Coast. And I think Ashland has that kind of grip on people. It's my chance now to ask an insider, do festival patrons have a group identity? Like Jimmy Buffett fans are called parrot heads or visitors to Mackinac Island are called fudgies. <laughs> is, there, is there a term of art for Ashland festival goers? That's a really interesting question. I, I don't know of a single term for Ashland fanatics. I know we have them, and we have them by the tens of thousands. Part of the reason this festival is so successful is uh, that people come here year after year as part of a theater pilgrimage. And we literally have grandmothers who are bringing their children, who are now bringing their children, and in some cases, their, their great-grandchildren. And so, yes, we have very, very deeply devoted fans that come back year after year. And when they come, they'll spend three or four days, and they'll see five or six shows. It really is a, a theater vacation, and, a, and we consider this a theater mecca uh, for that reason. 
but I don't know what the groupie name would be. I'd, I'd have to I'd have to get back to you on that because I'm not aware of there, there being one. Well, those of our listeners who aren't familiar with the Oregon Shakespeare Festival might be surprised to discover, as you say, that it's not a transient thing that happens once a year. It's in fact the largest regional theater in the country with three stages that are going for ten months out of the year. Our, our performance season is eight months. We have an enormous amount of work that we do in development, and a lot of that play development work um, happens in our off-season when we're not actually filling houses with audiences. Your 2015 season runs until late in the fall. Do you have any surprises in store for festival-goers this year? No, we have some really interesting shows on the bill. Uh, For one thing, we're doing Guys and Dolls, directed by Mary Zimmerman, who is obviously is a a well-known name in, in theater circles. And so we're really excited about having her open that show. We're doing a brand new play called Fingersmith, which was a very important book in England. And uh, we have the American premiere of a brand new play here at the festival. We're doing a play called Secret Love in Peach Blossom Land, which is a very important play well known in in Taiwan. But uh, we're getting the American premiere here this season. We're doing a brand new Lynn Nottage play called Sweat that's uh, already booked to have an afterlife in other regional theaters in the country. We're doing a brand new musical called Head Over Heels, which is being written by Jeff Witte, featuring the music of the Go-Go's. That's in our outdoor space. So it's true, though we are the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, people who are insiders in the theater know that we're doing a lot of new work, and that new work is having a a very uh, strong influence on work being done nationally now. You are currently the director of company development. What do you do? Well, thanks for asking that. It's, It's a pretty rare title. There's only one other theater that has a director of company development, and that's the Guthrie Theater. Because our acting company is so large, the idea of having somebody on staff full-time to really keep track of the individual company members and their artistic growth is important. I work on two different levels. On one level, I'm a scout. I go out to acting conservatories all over the country, and I identify young talent, and I keep track of them, and I try to recruit them for our work here at the theater. The other thing I do is in-house. I'm in charge, essentially, of our coaching staff. We have a resident voice and text staff. We have a head of voice, a resident voice and text director. We have a resident teacher of the Feldenkrais Method. We have a resident fight director, and they all come under my auspices as the director of company development. We also have a trainee program. This year, we have 15 acting company trainees, and I oversee their work with the festival. So I tend to be an ambassador for the acting company, an advocate for the acting company. It's very rare to have a theater that's that's invested in actor growth. And that's a big part of what makes this uh, a unique artistic institution is, is we care deeply about our artists growing. And that's a big part of my job as director of company development. I start to wonder how you find the time to write books and plays. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I wonder that too. (laughs) I find that there are things that I want to write. Writing is just part of who I am, and I carve out the time. Sometimes that time is literally at four in the morning. I'm cursed with that affliction that my best ideas tend to come to me when the practical side of my brain is, is offline. I do a lot of scrawling in the middle of the night. It's just something that I've developed over time, letting that part of my brain work in the middle of the night. And then later in the day, when I have a moment, I'll transcribe my chicken scrawlings into something that makes some sense, and then I'll develop it over more time. And you, as director of development, have taken responsibility for some Shakespeare training. 
Who was the most important voice in your own Shakespeare training? Oh, that's a, that's a very interesting question. I had a lot of different influences uh, as a Shakespeare uh, aficionado. I mean, I was trained as an actor at the University of Washington. There was a teacher up there named Robert L. Hobbs who uh, really taught me all the fundamentals of Shakespeare. And then I taught for Bob Hobbs at Duke University for three years, and that uh, deepened my knowledge of the work and how to teach it, how to coach it. And then I spent a year at the Central School of Speech and Drama in London, where my knowledge deepened even more. Having worked on the entire canon, I've learned a lot from a lot of different directors, from being in the rehearsal room with different actors, with different master actors, who have taught me uh, things that I didn't know just from watching them rehearse. One of the things about Shakespeare is uh, it's acquired over a great deal of time. And I've been very fortunate in being able to see hundreds of different actors attack the text so my knowledge of Shakespeare comes from a great number of influences. Well, one of the books that you've written, which is Shakespeare's Wordcraft, you talk about the lost art of rhetoric. And is that one of the things that young actors struggle with today when approaching Shakespeare? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I audition young people all over the country. And one of the biggest things that young actors are not getting is rhetoric. They don't understand figures of speech. They don't, they don't recognize rhetoric when they see it on the page. They just have no understanding of what it is and how it could be used. Part of the reason is it's just not taught in the American educational system. You might get a little of it in English class. We'll talk about metaphor, simile, but you know some of the really more exciting uh, rhetorical devices that you see in Shakespeare that are used repeatedly by characters uh, in long speeches in particular. Most young people don't even know that stuff is there. They just rush right over it. You can hear it when you listen to auditions, and you can certainly hear it when you listen to productions all over the country. You can hear very clearly that a certain rhetorical device has not been acknowledged, is not being managed or handled. There's no sense of an actor trying to illuminate a figure or to use a figure of speech as a way of pursuing an objective. It just doesn't happen. It's very rare to hear an actor work with that. So I started to develop that book as a way of addressing the issue. You know, I'm not an academic. I don't teach at the University of. So what you're looking at there is essentially the work of maybe 10 or 12 years of gathering, categorizing, and defining figures of speech from different plays that I worked on over time. And if you look at the book, I'm an acting coach, uh, and I'm a director, um, and I'm a voice and text person. I'm a theater practitioner. So if you look at the book, it's very much designed to help actors. I've completely stripped out the technical terms for those figures of speech, and that's quite deliberate. I've taken them out, and I've done that for a reason, because that's the first obstacle to young people learning what these figures are. You tell a young person that that's an epizuxis, and you've <laughs> lost them immediately. They don't care. But when you show them how a word is repeated or you show them how a word is twisted and shows up again in a different form, or if you show them how uh, this vowel is repeated over several lines, or you show them how the opposite of this word shows up in the line underneath it, then they get excited. They go, oh, I get it. It's wordplay. And, you know, nowadays with uh, young people who are listening to uh, hip hop, Young people actually get excited by wordplay and by language play. It's just that it needs to be offered them in a way that makes sense and doesn't put them off. I absolutely agree with you. And what I'm really interested in is that you've written this book and Mastering Shakespeare as well for the actor. Yeah, Mastering Shakespeare, my other book, is it's a very hard thing to write a book about acting because ultimately acting has to be taught in a, in a studio. 
you really need a master teacher in a classroom to learn acting. It, it's voice and it's body and it happens in the moment in real time and real space. So my approach to that was to try to write essentially in play form. My thinking was, well, an actor coming to this is used to reading plays, is used to reading dialogue. So this is not a form that's going to be foreign to someone who's actually an actor. And again, I've been criticized. The book is like, quote, inaccessible to people in English departments. But I wasn't writing it for them. I was writing it for young actors. Scott Kaiser, I want to ask you a question about mastering Shakespeare. One of the terms that you use extensively in the book is focal points. And this is something that I've found very useful. For those of our readers who aren't familiar with the term, what are focal points and how do actors use them? The focal point is technically a place that you can focus and then you, you project some sort of imagined image over that focal point. But you'd be surprised how many actors work without them and you can see it when, when actors' eyes wander. Their eyes are looking for something and they'll, they'll hit upon a light switch, let's say, and then suddenly the monologue will come into play because that light switch now, they have a place to project their mother onto the light switch. And once they have their mother, then the monologue gets going. So one of the things that I talk about is, is find that focal point first and then put your mother on it. And then you inhale your mother and then start to talk, start to play your objective through text or through speech. Some monologues, in fact, most monologues have more than one. So targets where you can put images and towards which you can play actions, just targets. You know, the film industry gets this because um, they'll often provide tennis balls on sticks for their actors. Great. It's, it's a discipline that I think you have to instill early on in the rehearsal process. And of course, if you're working on an audition in particular, it's you just have to work it into your audition. Well, your latest book, The Tao of Shakespeare, was published last year. And in the intro, you talk about how you discovered similarities between the Tao Te Ching and various other Buddhist texts and Shakespeare. Would you care to talk about that a little bit? Yes. The Tao of Shakespeare is a deeply personal book for me in that I recently completed my canon. I've worked on every play in Shakespeare's canon, and I arrived in a place where I started to see similarities throughout the plays. And one of those similarities was a sort of a spiritual aspect of Shakespeare's writing that I hadn't seen previously. I've lived enough of my life that some of the things that Shakespeare is talking about in terms of what it is to be facing uh, your own mortality, what it is to have children out in the world, what it is to have parents who are beginning to fade, what it is to have carried anger and bitterness through many decades and feeling the need to let go of that. Shakespeare talks about all of these things. And when you look at some of the spiritual writings of the Buddha, and if you look at the Tao Te Ching, you'll see that there are enormous similarities between the way Shakespeare talks about some of these large life issues. And so what I did, just like with my rhetoric book, I just started to pull quotes out of the canon that I felt somehow reflected uh, the Buddha's thinking uh, or the thinking in the, the Tao Te Ching. And from there, I began to write uh, meditations. So what I was trying to do is something rather tricky, which is juggle three balls at once. <laughs> uh, a quote from Shakespeare, a Buddhist philosophical tenet, and a contemporary meditation on the intersection between them. That is incredible. And immediately I start thinking of quotes from Shakespeare that resonate with me in that way. The first one that came to mind is the quality of mercy is not strained. I'm wondering if you use that in the Tao of Shakespeare. I'm nearly certain I wrote uh, a meditation for that quote. I'm sure it was very high on my list, but I'm not sure it made the cut actually. 
There are some quotes that are so deep. They didn't make the cut because it was hard to get them down to a single page. Gotcha. Yeah. Another piece of writing you've done, which is not a book, is a play called Love's Labor's One. And I'm very interested to hear your inspiration for the play Love's Labor's One. Well, this was a pet project of mine. I'd always assumed, having acted in Love's Labor's Lost and having directed it and having coached it, I always assumed that there was a sequel. It's up for debate. We don't have the sequel to Love's Labor's Lost. And the reason I believe that is that there's really no other play of Shakespeare's, no other comedy, certainly, where he writes with a cliffhanger. It's very clear at the end of Love's Labor's Lost. We talk about, we'll get back together in a year and uh, we'll pick up where we left off. They're given very specific tasks, the men, in order for them to come back and win the love of their women. So it's unusual of all the comedies in particular that is written as a cliffhanger. It has all the earmarks of a part one. Some critics uh, write that off and say, no, Love's Labor's one is actually Taming of the Shrew or Much Ado About Nothing. That's not my opinion. So um, knowing and loving Love's Labor's Lost, I decided I, I wanted to write the sequel. <laughs> you know, for many, many years, I didn't have the skill to do that um, because writing in iambic pentameter is challenging writing in rhymed verse is even more challenging and writing the kind of language play, the rhetorical devices and language play that exist in Love's Labor's Lost, replicating that is also challenging. It's fantastic. Scott, would you like to share with us a, an excerpt from Love's Labor's One, perhaps from the prologue? I would. I wrote a prologue for Love's Labor's One. At the end of Love's Labor's Lost, they agreed to meet in a year. And my main conceit was this, that uh, because the father of the princess, the king of France, dies, the death of the king of France starts a continental war. And rather than the lovers meeting in a year, the war delays their reunion for four years. And in those four years, all of the lovers are changed by the cruelty of war. So the end of those four years, the lovers are reunited in the palace in Paris with a signing of a treaty for the war to end. So that's the conceit of where the play starts four years later. So in the spirit of other monologues in Shakespeare, for example, the character of Rumor, which starts the second part of Henry IV, or the character of Time in Winter's Tale, I wrote a speech to be spoken by the character of War. Nay, do not run, for thou dost know me well. Though now my clothes are torn, and my grim visage arrayed in blood, t'was only four years since that thou didst take my hand and welcome me. Why is this not the very place that thou didst fold me in thy open arms, and kissed my rosy cheeks, and praised my bearing much, swearing oaths and waving flags as I marched by? And dost thou now not know me? Oh, for shame! Why, thou didst polish bright my silver buttons, and sharpen my worn sword, and fill my purse with borrowed gold and new collected treasure. And dost thou now not recognize my face? I am war, the pandemonious child you once adored. Born in the selfsame hour, and in that same contagious bed, whereon the last French king commanded his last breath, whose sickness carried on the wanton breeze, infected intertwined alliances as fragile as a widow spider's web, infesting all the fecund courts of Europe with deadly enmity. For four long years, 
I've toiled for thy glory without rest, deafening sons with my thunderous voice, defiling daughters with my fiery fists, trampling villages with my cruel boots, starving children with my greedy stomach, bereaving fathers with my stony heart, widowing wives with my venomous breath, divorcing bodies from their timeless souls, and all in loving and devoted service to thy most deep and secretive desires. And dost thou now disown me, call me bastard, spit out my bitter name? Well, tis no matter. I know thou shalt despair when I am gone, which soon may come to pass. For now, alas, the fickle coronets of Spain and France do court in Paris, where they woo and dance, united by desire to conceive a fetal treaty that will banish me from out the skirts of these deflowered lands. But what care I if they expel me hence? For I am in great demand on every plot of this contentious ball of wormy earth. Pretend then, henceforth, not to know my birth. A round or two my labors here shall cease, while time gestates my witless sibling, Peace. That was Scott Kaiser reading the character of War from his play Love's Labors One. And Scott, when I hear that, I'm hearing echoes of so many of Shakespeare's plays. There are figures in there embedded from Shrew, Richard III, Coriolanus, Lear, and I'm sure many others that escaped me the first time through. Was that deliberate on your part? Oh, absolutely deliberate. As, as I said, I had to acquire a certain body of knowledge before I could even attempt to do this. So when you hear echoes of Shrew or Coriolanus or Richard III or other plays by Shakespeare, that's quite deliberate on my part. I know where to borrow and to steal. Uh, sometimes I'll steal a vessel or a package. There's a character or a play or a situation that's like the one I'm trying to write, and I'll just borrow it, and I'll decide to use a repeated ending or repeated beginning or a particular wordplay from another play. So those... People who know Shakespeare and, and attend Love's Labors One will hear me subtly borrowing from other plays they know. And it's not just vocabulary, it's wordplay. That's the hardest thing to get. Right now, for example, there's a there's a Star Wars Shakespeare out there. If you look at that play, <laughs> it's an interesting piece. It's a it's a fascinating thing that someone's attempted to do. But if you look at that, none of the wordplay that Shakespeare uses throughout the canon is, is is exists inside those scripts. And that is the major difference, I think, between what I'm doing and what other people have attempted. As I I know how these wordplays work. I've written about them. I've coached actors about how this works. I've taught classrooms full of, of students how these wordplays uh, function. So I'm able to put them into the work in a way that resonates and that, that people who know Shakespeare can actually hear and feel. Well, it sounds like, although it's certainly not silly or, or tongue-in-cheek, but it seems like while being respectful uh, of the material, there's a great sense of fun in it as well. <laughs> I think a lot of uh, knowledgeable audience members really enjoyed the detective work involved in to try to figure out where I got something. <laughs> in your war speech, I actually did the scansion of it, and line eight seems very, very interesting to me. Let's see. Which one is Swearing that? Swearing oaths and waving flags as I marched by. It seems to be four trochies in a row, unless I'm... What you're looking at there... Remember, with, with war, I knew that I was dealing with a, with a very complex character, so what you're actually looking at there is a headless Alexandrin. <laughs> <laughs> Do you okay, follow me? Have to put that in. 
in. <laughs> yeah, and it makes a lot of sense. It's so great. it's there's a missing syllable at the front of it. It looks like it's trochaic, but it isn't. And so it's downbeat, the swearing O's and waving right. flags as I march by. There's a missing downbeat, and that, that's what makes it look like it's uh, trochaic, but it isn't. The other person who uses a headless Alexandrian is Iago or Edmund the Bastard, some of those really challenging characters. I'm Please. working on a pun that ties together war, uh, Alexandria. And headlessness. I'm sure that I can, sure that I can uh, yeah. go there. We all know that Shakespeare coined many new words, and I'm just wondering how many new words are in your Love's Labors 1. That's a wonderful question. I appreciate your asking that. I, I did, in fact, coin new words in Love's Labors 1. That was part of the fun, is to try to make up words that didn't exist, because that's what Shakespeare did. One of the things that I learned about Shakespeare from writing the play is why he did some of the things he did. And one of the things I learned about why he coined new words is simply when you're writing in metrical verse, sometimes you just can't find the word. You know it has to be a trochee, or you know it has to be a trochee that leads you to a three-syllable hole in the line that you have, or you know you've got to rhyme this line and you can't find a good rhyme. You know, there are just times in writing metrical verse that a word, an existing word, is just not going to fix it. And one of the things I discovered about Shakespeare was the impulse to coin a word is not always about, hey, look how clever I am, I invented a new word. Sometimes it's, I need a three-syllable word that has an O vowel in it that has a stress, unsess, stress rhythm so I can stick it in the middle of this line and have it make some sense. I learned so much more about Shakespeare by trying to replicate his process than I ever had in just simply reading him and coaching him and teaching him. Mm. And word coinage was one of the big epiphanies for me. I began to understand why he would make up a word. It had a lot to do with the verse line. Scott Kaiser, could you leave us with your favorite Scott Kaiser coinage? From Love's Labors One. Pandemonious, yeah, that's. Exactly. Ah, I was hoping you would say that. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't find a word there. I thought something about violent, chaotic. So, uh, yeah, pandemonious was definitely one of my one of my coinages. It's a good word, <laughs> Scott Kaiser. Thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Uh, it was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for speaking with me. God, this was great. Thanks so much. Thank you. I'm Garrett Vandermeer, and I'm Jim Elliot, and thank you for listening to the State of Shakespeare. Thanks for joining us for the State of Shakespeare podcast. We invite you to visit stateofshakespeare.com for more episodes, information about each of our guests, and the Shakespeare text you heard on the program, and much more. And we welcome you to join the discussion by liking us on Facebook. That's www.stateofshakespeare.com. Thanks for listening.